John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Well, as we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, help us come to see Jesus as the King who conquers over all, of what really matters, the divide between us and between you. And help us see Jesus as your promised King, our Prince of Peace, and our bringer of salvation. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat. And good morning. And if I've met you before, uh, my name's Dave, as Ben said. I'm a member of the congregation, and it's great to be here uh, with you, uh, opening this passage together. And let me start by asking you a question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Now, to some of us in the room, there'll be a a quick reaction. Jesus is saviour. He is is Lord, he's king. Perhaps to others amongst us, well, he's he's a man we've we've heard about. He's someone that we've we've heard of or heard friends talk about. And we're here this morning to begin to explore a little more about who he is and and what it means to follow him. And maybe to to some of us, actually, well, he's nobody. He's nobody. He's he's an irrelevance. But you're here uh, through circumstances beyond your control. And you're going to learn more about him whether you like it or not. But what if I uh, subtly change that question and instead of asking who Jesus is, asked you, well, well, what is Jesus to you? 
What is Jesus to you? Because that subtly different question is right at the heart of our passage this Palm Sunday morning. It's the question that was on the hearts and minds of those crowds who went out to Jesus from Jerusalem and to the religious leaders who were watching events with interest. In the verses immediately before our passage this morning, we see those crowds going out, don't we? If you look to verse 9 of John 12, we see that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. The crowds rush out to Jesus, but who was he to them? Well, he was the man who'd raised Lazarus from the dead. He was the man who brought a man who'd been dead for three, four days back to life again. But the answer to the question of, well, what was Jesus to them would have been very different. Perhaps for some, he was the person who was going to free them from the oppression that had been imposed upon them by the Roman regime. And for some, as we read in verse 11, he was a man to believe in. Do you see that? On account of him, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. But in the verse just before that, there's a dark undercurrent. What was Jesus to the religious authorities? Well, he was a threat. They'd already resolved to put him to death. And yet in verse 10, we read that such was their concern about Jesus. They'd resolved to put to death his friend Lazarus too, lest the message of him spread even further. And this morning, I'm going to claim that the Apostle John wrote these words in chapter 12 to help us answer our two questions. Who is Jesus and what is Jesus to us? And that the Jesus we find in the gospel does not, cannot be squeezed into any man-made responsibility or role, but instead is the king. He is the king who conquers over all. He's the king who conquers over what really matters, the divide between us and God. And John does that by showing us Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament's vision of what God's promised king would do. So we turn to our passage this morning in verse 12. Now verses 12 and 13 say, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Pause for a moment and try and picture the scene. Try and picture the scene of these crowds rushing out from the city to meet this group of pilgrims coming towards it from Bethany, just outside the city walls. Coming out and crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They go to him, and they don't just go to him crying out this great shout, but they're carrying something, aren't they? They go out to him carrying the branches of the palm trees. And the words and actions of the crowds give us a clue to both who Jesus was to those crowds and what they believed he could be. Jesus was, they hoped to at least, their liberator. Those palm branches were symbols associated with national freedom. And so in grabbing up the branches from the palm trees and rushing out to Jesus, they were making a statement. Here's the man sent by God to give us our freedom. And even the words they shout out hold significance. Hosanna. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a word which uh, I'll have seen or, or interacted with in hymns, songs, uh, various different contexts for a lot of my life without ever really knowing what it really means or, or where it comes from. So, so bear with me a, a moment because this can get a little bit knotty. Um, the word Hosanna 
is an English translation of the Greek translation of a Hebrew phrase in its original language. And that Hebrew phrase is found only once in the Old Testament, in Psalm 118, verse 25. And if there's any Hebrew scholars in the room, forgive my uh, pronunciation, which I'm not entirely sure if it's correct, but the phrase is Hoshia Na. And that phrase means, save me, save me, please. So when the pilgrims of the Jewish people in the ancient times went up to the temple for the Feast of the Tabernacles, the temple choir would sing Psalm 118. And as they got to this point in the psalm, they would all cry out together, save me, please, save me, please. And that's what these crowds say to Jesus, save us save us. And it's easy for us to think if they had their focus on the political situation in which they found themselves only, that they were wrong. And we think, how could they have got themselves into such a knot? Despite their interaction with Jesus, they were, they were convinced that his primary concern was their political situation. Were they not listening to what Jesus said and taught? Did they not witness what he did? But we've got to be careful not to be too dismissive of the attitudes of their hearts. What they wanted wasn't in and of itself wrong. That desire to be freed from oppression is not wrong, is it? It's, it's right. But even if they were on the right path, that Jesus was the one who could save them, they misunderstood how he could save them. He was the one who would save them, and he was their expected king. But it was just that he did not come to do what they expected or wanted. In the same way, it's not wrong for us to turn to Jesus with particular situations or concerns in prayer and to cry out, save us. But we have to recognize that that is not what this passage is telling us about who Jesus is or why Jesus came. He was concerned for the people of Jerusalem, so concerned he wept over them. And yet, his primary care was not to free them from the Roman authorities, but for their hearts. His primary concern was to bring them salvation, the salvation they needed. And in the same way, his primary concern for us is that we recognize him as our king, our prince of peace, and our bringer of salvation. So how does John present us with Jesus the king? Well, in the passage, the scene shifts rapidly, doesn't it, into verse 14, and we read, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, when we come to this moment in the passage, there's a danger for those of us who've been Christians for a little while. And that danger is that it's over-familiar. We know what happens next. And we don't take care to see what it is that God is saying to us through his word here this morning. This morning is a great time then, isn't it, for us to ask the Holy Spirit to work afresh in our hearts, to reveal once more the incredible nature of this king who rode in on a donkey, the depth of sacrifice that God the Father made for us, and the suffering and the glory that was going to come to God the Son in the events of the week ahead. You see, in these verses, John gives us a Jesus in charge of everything. Jesus takes the donkey and rides it into Jerusalem. And there's a wonderful mirroring here in the way that John tells the story 
in terms of the way it rises to a crescendo of the crowds crying out Hosanna before the donkey is taken, this humble beast, with what Jesus is highlighting to these people. The tumult of the crowd's cries could have been deafening, and yet, just when Jesus could have ridden into the city as its conquering king, he takes a humble beast, a beast of burden, a donkey, and rides in. He shows them by his actions that he is their prince of peace and not the leader of a military rebellion. And not only this, John is absolutely clear, isn't he? He wants us to see in these words a fulfillment of all that God had promised to his people in the words of the prophet Zechariah. John says, just as it is written, for him there is no doubt. And in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And yet, where Zechariah presents rejoicing and the instruction to behold a righteous king, John says, fear not. Why not fear? Well, John wants us to see that the promises that were made to the nation of Judah hundreds of years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his donkey are fulfilled, are made true in the life and work of Jesus and are for us. And what are those promises? Well, Zechariah goes on to describe a gentle king who brings the end of war, peace to the nations, a global reign of peace, no less. And this peace is established by and because of the blood of the covenant. Now, for John, this blood of the covenant has been renewed and refreshed and made complete in the blood of Christ on the cross. For John, Jesus' glorification is his rising up to the cross to be buried in the tomb before being raised on the third day and then ascending into heaven. Jesus is completely glorified, and those promises made to Israel are made to us. The disciples are watching what's going on, but did you notice in verse 16? They don't get it. His disciples did not understand these things at first. They couldn't understand the fullness of all that Jesus was to do until it was done. They couldn't see Jesus in his full glory until he'd been glorified in his resurrection. Jesus' rule as the Prince of Peace and King of Kings can only make sense in light of his death on the cross that first Good Friday and his resurrection. But why does that matter to us this morning, sat here in 2019 in Benwell? What difference does it make to say that Jesus is our Prince of Peace, our King and our bringer of salvation? It's helpful, I think, for us to consider well, what's the situation before we are united with Jesus in faith? Well, before we're united with him, well, we're not at peace with God. We're at war with him. We're at war with God. We're his enemies. And the fullness of Scripture is clear that the eternal outcome of being an enemy of God is judgment and is death. We're unrighteous where Jesus is righteous. And I know from my own painful experience, the pain that that unrighteousness, sin, causes in my heart and in the hearts of others. Without salvation, if we are without Jesus, we are without salvation. And we're enslaved to sin and eventually to death. And yet, here is our king. When we're united to him, he becomes our prince of peace. Our war with God is over. We take on his righteousness. 
He's our bringer of salvation. And so we should rejoice. We should rejoice. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We should be ready to shout aloud with praise. To behold that our king has come. Victory is his. But I don't know about you. I don't often feel like that. I don't often shout aloud with praise in my daily life. Perhaps I don't feel as often as I should the joy that's rooted in him. We struggle sometimes to have the same infectious enthusiasm of the crowds of Jerusalem that we read about in John 12. Perhaps because we've grown indifferent to the depth of our salvation or because of some bitterly hard personal circumstances which make it so difficult to raise our eyes to the king. But we're not called here by John to some kind of fake uh, appearance of joyfulness. We're called instead to, to turn again to Christ, to ask for help from our help of the Holy Spirit and to refocus our gaze on this king. So let me say again that this Easter time, it's a great opportunity to resolve to do that. In this week as we prepare for Easter Sunday, to resolve to seek Jesus as he is in, his, in the word of God. To recognize who we are in him, no longer at war, but restored to relationship. And to be filled again with the peace and joy that come from his unshakable peace. And not from ourselves. How then will you respond this morning to who Jesus is and what he can be to us? In our passage, John gives us two contrasting responses. If we look to verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, The whole world has gone after him. Two contrasting responses to Jesus. The crowds who've traveled with Jesus, seen all that had taken place in the raising of Lazarus, moved towards Jerusalem, cried out to him to save him, now cannot be suppressed. They can't help but bear witness to all that Jesus had done. And while their example is not perfect, as we know from the rest of the story, many go from Jesus turn on him their example is one for us to follow nevertheless if Jesus really is the giver of life if he really is our prince of peace then we should be ready to tell others and you notice the impact of their infectious enthusiasm the crowd grows so are are we ready this morning to go out and tell to present Jesus as the king of kings as our giver of peace and giver of life to those around us our friends, our colleagues, our family members. Maybe this is the week uh, to step out in faith and and invite a friend or a relative or a colleague to celebrate Easter with us, to join us next Sunday to what we we trust is going to be a joyful egg-decorating, rolling, bacon sandwich-consuming, Christ-celebrating and rejoicing occasion. Invite them. Let them come and taste and see why we are filled with the joy that doesn't come from within us. Invite them along. Or perhaps you've got a friend who who you've had a conversation with who you think might be interested to know more about who Jesus is. Well, we as a church are keen to resource you to that end. And there are gospels available. Why not take a gospel and, and work through the story with them? Present them with what happened. Invite them to come and encounter this king of kings, this prince of peace. The crowds couldn't be suppressed, and we shouldn't be either. 
I know, as well as anybody, that fear of rejection that stops us from being bold, that sense of shyness that overcomes us. But perhaps this is the week to challenge that. So on one hand, we have the crowds, and on the other, we have the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they despair at Jesus' success. And there is a bittersweet irony in their words. The whole world has gone after him. In the Greek, the phrase used for the world here is cosmos, and that word is used by John throughout his narrative to describe and talk about all people of all nations without racial distinction. There was nothing the Pharisees could do to stop the world going over to Jesus. There was nothing the world could do to stop Jesus' God-given mission. As he explained to Nicodemus at the very start of his story, in verse 17 of John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And this international reach of Jesus' mission is confirmed almost immediately by John when the Greeks come to visit him in verse 20, seeking him out. And Jesus' response to that highlights to us that the story is reaching its conclusion. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified by being lifted up to the cross to die in our place, to be buried and on the third day rise again, to demonstrate that not only is he the giver of life, but he's the defeater of death and to offer us into that relationship with God through him. So who is Jesus this morning to you, and and what is he to you? I hope that this morning's passage has, has encouraged you to see him again as he really is, recorded by these eyewitness testimonies in God's word, rather than the vision or version of Jesus we can allow ourselves to slip into by over-familiarity or by a lack of understanding. Because we've encountered a Jesus who, who was sent to save all people, who inspired in those around him the desire to go out and to serve at his side, to be witnesses to all they'd seen in his company. And as those disciples went out into the world, having fully understood the significance of these events, we're confronted to do the same thing, to go out and tell others about this Jesus, the Word made flesh, God incarnate, who fulfilled all the Old Testament said was necessary for God's anointed King, and more. And the challenge he presents us to serve him and follow him as our King of Kings, our Prince of Peace, and our Lord of Lords. Let's stand uh, to sing together and to consider those things. A particular help, perhaps, is the final verse of this song, which says, If thou callest to the cross, and its shadow come, turning all my gain to loss and shrouding heart and home, let me think how thy dear Son to his glory came, and in deepest woe pray on, glorify thy name. Let's stand and sing.